Hey listeners, Troy here from Apologetics Canada. Welcome to the AC Podcast. Today, I will not be your host. You're actually going to be hearing from Steve Kim, Andy Steiger, and Wes as they dive into part two of Will Everyone Be Saved? But before I hand it over to them, I want to let you know an event we got coming up at the end of the month. If you haven't heard already, the AC Leadership Summit is back. And the summit seeks to bring together aspiring Christian leaders from across the West Coast for an incredible weekend to empower, equip, and engage. This is an opportunity for young professionals aged 19 to 30 to meet one another and grow together as Christian leaders. So again, that's on October 28th to the 30th, starting at 4 p.m. We'll be heading to Sasquatch Mountain to stay in an amazing resort called The Green Giant. The process for signing up is through application and spots are filling up. So make sure you reserve your spot. Head over to ApologeticsCanada.com slash events and check out the Leadership Summit and make sure you sign up today. Secondly, coming up on November 4th, Apologetics Canada will be holding an event at Midtown Church called Identity Crisis, Sexuality, Gender, and Why Humans Exist. In partnership with Midtown Church, Apologetics Canada will be addressing some critical issues. Join us for an evening of thought-provoking dialogue and an opportunity to work through one of the most controversial topics in our current cultural climate. So once again, that's November 4th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Midtown Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. You can head to our event page at apologeticscanada.com events for more details and to lock it in your calendar. Okay, got it? Good. That's all from me. Enjoy the podcast. My main concern is, are we reading restoration into these words from a Christian universalist perspective? Well, let me add a little bit more to this, and then we'll let Wesley solve it all. Uh, <laughs> no problem. That's why I'm here. That's why you guys bring me on the podcast. <laughs> because there is, a, there's a, there is another challenge that goes on here, too. And that is, what are people being punished for uh, is, is an important question to ask. And, and this, this, to me, starts to really narrow in on where the where the conflict really lies. And that is, you can frame the conversation like this. Okay, if salvation is to be restored into right relationship with God, then are people being punished because they have chosen not to love God? Which I, th- I think a lot of people would have a, lot of, would have a problem with because it would be like, and, and you tell me how you feel about this. Like if I said to my wife, hey, you know, Nancy, I, I want you to love me. And if you don't, uh, I'm going to send you off to prison sort of thing. But you're totally free to make your choice, right? So that's how I think some people feel about, about this. They're like, well, is that what I'm being punished for? Because again, I think people feel like this is manifestly unfair. Well, and I, I think that's a good place to kind of move the conversation um, cause it's all, I think, I think it's important to talk exegetically about, about the terms and the language and, but let's be honest, Steve, it's all Greek to the average listener, right? <laughs> um, and not, not everybody is as nerdy as West and has their Greek New Testament out. Um, but I think if we're talking, if we zoom out and we talk about these ideas theologically and how kind of this orthodoxy, this right teaching leads into orthopraxy, which is right practice i think it 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 these concepts really affect how we understand first and foremost who god is and then secondly what we believe about sin 
because I think ultimately, whether the universalist is intending to do it or not, they're downplaying the severity of sin and who the sin is against and towards. And so I think this relates to your question, Andy, is that we are punished for our sin because our sin is a direct affront to God. And and it's, I remember listening to this talk by Nabil Qureshi, um, who, you know, the, the former Ampani Muslim who converted to Christianity, wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And um, he did this presentation once where he wanted, he was talking about the fact that, uh, I believe it was a sermon where he said he, he had asked for a mirror to be brought on the stage and they wouldn't let him because his plan was that uh, he said, you know, his concept within Islam of sin was that there was a mark on the mirror and you needed to clean it. And he said what he wanted to do is he wanted to say, no, that's not what sin is. And then he wanted to pick up the mirror and smash it on the stage. He said, that's sin, right? It's not, oops, I broke the plate. It's, oops, I intentionally poured gasoline on the kitchen and burned the house down. Like, I, I think ultimately if we're saying that everyone can be redeemed, what it does it cheapens both the justice of God and the grace of God because our sin is so devastating towards our relationship with God and the price that that costs God. You know, why, why does God hate sin? I think one of the reasons that we can articulate is, is that it killed his one and only son. And I think we can say that uh, without reservation. And so when we talk about, you know, are people going to hell because they rejected Jesus? Well, I think that could be true in, in that if there is a, a purposeful rejection of who God is, but ultimately individuals are in hell because they love their sin and their sin is a rebellion and a purposeful act of rebellion to a gracious and holy God who created them out of an outpouring of his love. And so I think that there are theological ramifications, uh, as I said before, as to who God is and um, who we are and how we view our, our beautiful yet broken humanity. Let me give you a pushback. I'll put my universalist hat on. I was going to do the same thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, great minds think alike, or maybe it's because we both have really great hair bald dude. heads yeah we have <laughs> good, you have good landing comment. pads for that uh universalist hat <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you i i appreciate that now a universalist uh would often use the illustration of an addiction right so the idea is the reason you're pouring gasoline and burning down the kitchen is because there's something wrong with you in your right mind you wouldn't do this and the reason you're doing this is because well the, it's the sin nature you're 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 corrupt Right. And so uh, what God is doing is he is restoring you so that, you know, he is through whatever um, the cleansing of the hell, you know, and those kinds of things. He is removing those things that are sort of that are creating these blocks in your mind. You know, so let's let me use an example of drug addiction. So if my child has gotten into the bad habit of doing drugs. Uh, what's a loving thing to do? Uh, why is my son, for example, doing drugs? It's because, well, yes, he did make some poor choices, but I wouldn't say, hey, you made your choice, you know, like you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life or until you destroy your life. But rather what I would want to do is bring him in, right? And cut him off from whatever is feeding his addiction, right? Can He can be restored because when you're addicted, your will is affected, right? 
And that's why you keep doing the things, you keep going back to these things that will never fulfill you. So he, so a loving father, a universalist might say, wants to restore that will so that in his right mind, he will choose not to do drugs anymore. Um, so the question is like, why are you pouring gasoline and burning down the kitchen in the first place? Um, and so they they look at it more as you know the sin as a as a disease that needs to be cured, and God is the great healer who comes in to heal you. And there is less emphasis on God as as the judge. It seems to me anyway, um, as the judge who is doling out punishment. So from your, I, I know you're, uh, you know, our resident reformed guy. So from your perspective, then how would you answer that? Well, I think there is some truth to that in using sin with the analogy of addiction. So I think I would in part agree with that. I think ultimately where it goes wrong is that argument by analogy in this regard ultimately denies what Scripture says about the nature of divine punishment and God's justice. And I think ultimately it would lead to a God taking more lightly than I think Scripture describes what our sin is. I think I would go more on the side of C.S. Lewis, who says uh, that the, the door to hell is locked from the inside. That if you open the door to hell and you allowed an individual to come out, I don't think they would come out and immediately rush towards the, the hallway of heaven. I think they would spit at the doorway of heaven. And I think ultimately Lewis also says that hell is the response of God saying, thy will be done and giving us over to our our sin and our trespasses. And um, in that regard, uh, I think there's there's still a misunderstanding of the gravity of sin. And ultimately, I don't think God is going to force individuals, especially if we're talking about um, atheists or Muslims, uh, especially atheists or Muslims who have been hostile to Jesus for their entire life, the last thing they want to do is be in God's presence eternally. I don't think God is going to do that. I don't think God is going to force those individuals into his presence. Um, I think God is going to give them over to their depravity in the, the punishment that they rightly deserve. And um, I think I see that clearly in, in scripture with what is described. So I still think it's a misunderstanding of the, the fullness of sin, God's ultimate justice, and the penalty that you know, you're either found in Adam or you're found in Jesus. And if you're not covered in the blood of Christ, you are still under the federal headship of Adam and and under the the penalty of that. Can I push that just a little more? Sure. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I can hear a universalist say, right, okay, those atheists and Muslims, why mm -hmm. are they hostile to Jesus, right? Well, there could be many, many reasons, uh, but some of those things are, you know, like for some Muslims, I mean, that's what they grew up in, right? That that's all they've ever known is Jesus being a mere prophet of God, not the Son of God, right? And those kinds. Of, so, what's a loving thing for God to do then? Is it to kind of abandon them in their current state, or to to come and actually, for example, in in whatever way it might be, right, reveal Himself to them or something like that? Actually, show them what the truth is so that they can actually at least make up their mind about it. Um, so I, I know this then starts to, you can see that connects into the whole big question of the fate of those who never hear the gospel or fate of the unevangelized. So I, I'm not sure we have time to go into that necessarily, but because I, I, I'm just kind of 
telling you what I can hear a universalist might say. I think part of it assumes that God owes us something, that we are owed something by God uh, because of something that's innate to us. And this is actually, if you read universalistic, universalistic literature, uh, Christian universalism sometimes argues this, almost like the, the Imago Dei, the image of God is like a helium balloon. And when you die, it just kind of, your soul floats up to heaven because of that Imago Dei that is in you. And I, I think that's, that's incorrect. I just lost my, I pulled a Steve and just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> Wes, where are you? Wesley. Uh, <laughs> um, where, where was I going with that exactly? Uh, I think it would be an overemphasized example of God's mercy and love and grace and justice to have just saved Abraham. And that's it. If God just saved Abraham and left the entire rest of the history of humanity to their depravity, I think it would have been more gracious than we are owed. And the fact is that the testimony of scripture is that God didn't just save Abraham. He saved an innumerable number, as many as the sand on the seashore and as many as the, the stars in the sky, as he promises to Abraham, right? Your, your descendants will be this. And then Paul picks that imagery up in the book of Romans uh, with you know us being the children of Abraham um, who believe in, in Jesus as the Messiah in, in, this, in this time that we find ourselves in. And so I think the fact that we see God's grace and mercy and justice saving anyone is uh, a miraculous fact. And I think the universalist, there's something in the, the underlying presupposition of these types of arguments that almost assumes that God has to save us, that he should save us because of something that's innate to us. And I don't think that's true. I think it still misunderstands the justice of God and that the price that was paid for God to fulfill his justice in sending the one and only son to the cross, that the second person of the Trinity steps out of eternity and into humanity, into that depravity, and then takes that punishment upon himself on our behalf, that ultimately, if we center on the cross, we will always have an understanding that I think will will break through some of this um, this uh, me-centered presupposition that I personally see in universalism. Just a couple things. And by the way, I could just imagine some people might be listening to this thinking, this is just one big hot mess. And they're right. It, it is. It's a difficult subject. And there's a lot of nuance to it. And as Steve is is doing a great job at showing, you know, and so is Wes, you know, like the, the, there's points and counterpoints and, you know, kind of going uh, back and forth on, on this subject. One, this is one of the reasons why I read the scriptures that I read at the beginning uh, to like, to kind of ground the conversation, right. As we, as we read that salvation is found in Jesus alone, as we read that um, God's desire is that all would be saved. And as we, as we read that God is good and is just and God will do right. And so it's like, we have to keep those intention as, as we're working uh, this issue through. Now, with regards, Steve, to, you know, some of the questions that you're asking, I, I think one of the major assumptions, though, that I hear from universalists that, that really needs to be challenged is, is there's this basic assumption is that people 
love God or will love God. And they just need the right information or they just need the right revelation or, you know, being given to them and 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 they will love God. But that is not the reality that we see. It's not the reality that we see in Scripture, and it's not the reality we see around us uh, that you even see with Satan has lots of information about God, and he's still in opposition to God. And I think what Wes points out with regards to uh, C.S. Lewis, and I am in agreement with Lewis, and this is probably one of the hardest things for me and my time in ministry to come to terms with, is people's heart against God, and that so many don't love God. And that, that I think, is really hard for us to wrestle with. And there is this desire that love would win. I, I, I can resonate with that. I, I wish that was the case, but, I, but you hear Jesus, you know, as he's pleading uh, for, for these people, saying, man, how long I've desired to gather you like a hen gathers his chicks. But you just weren't willing. You just won't come, sort of, sort of idea. And we see this in many, many, many passages. We see this in the whole history of the Bible as a God who is just constantly remaining faithful in his love towards people and a people who is constantly rebelling in constant opposition to God. And then we see this as Jesus comes and demonstrates that faithful love all the way to the cross, again, just putting in in center stage that God is good and God is loving and God is just, but yet people crucified him, right? And keep people continue to be in opposition to, to God. And this is the uncomfortable reality that a lot of universalists just don't want to come to terms with. And, and that is the, the true depths of sin and depravity and the opposition that exists between us and God. I wanted to bring up one more passage, actually a couple of different passages that are kind of connected in the book of Revelation chapter 21. And I want to raise a couple of questions, not necessarily for us to answer right now, but just to give us the fodder you know, for some further thought. So Revelation 21, uh, starting in verse six, it says, now just for context, this is the part where, you know, New heaven and new earth, right? The new Jerusalem has come down and things are being restored. Revelation 21, 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with the fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, in a little later, in Revelation 21, verse 27, it says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, enter the gates, uh, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So two questions that I'm going to raise, which we don't have to get into right now again just some further ref- for further reflection two questions one does the book of revelation tell us about the final state of things or not because a universalist will have to look at this and go okay there are you know the sexually immoral the sorcerers idolaters you know the cowardly and, and 
all these people are outside of the gates, okay, now they will eventually be all reconciled to God and they will enter to, through the gates eventually. So they would have to read Revelation 21 and go, this is not the end. More work is being done. Um, to me, it seems like it's reading into the text, but again, this is something to think about. The second question that I have about the Lamb's Book of Life, are there those who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Right? It says again, uh, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, a universalist would have to say that everybody's name is written in the Book of Life, or that their names, as they get you know, reformed, will be written in the Book of Life. Again, to me, it seems like you're at that point, you have to read into the text here. But again, just some further thought. Let me... Let me just move the conversation into a, a different direction, Steve, that would, I think, apply to what you're asking and is actually more along the lines of, um, I, I find it really fascinating as we're having this conversation that each of us come at it from a different perspective. Uh, and the perspective that I think through this issue is, has, is completely different from what's been brought up thus far. <laughs> yeah. So as, as interesting as the conversation of, of hell has been, uh, for me, that doesn't really resonate uh, much because I feel like, personally, I, I feel like the question, there's questions that precede that. Questions such as, uh, how is God going to deal with people in general? And this is where I think this question of universalism becomes really tricky because Christians can be contradictory uh, on this point. And, and that's where, again, this becomes a very messy subject as we're working through it. So, for example, we're, we're in agreement that Jesus is required for salvation. Only Jesus, right? But if that's the case, what do you do about the Old Testament, where you have people who don't have Jesus? So what happens to Abraham? Now, you and I know that the Bible actually addresses this question because they're concerned about it, too. They're like, salvation is only in Jesus, but what do we do about our Jewish brothers or the heritage of, of our faith? And so Paul uh, wrestles with this question, and you have this question being wrestled with in, in Hebrews as well. And, and we're told, by the way, uh, and Paul quotes uh, the Old Testament, Genesis you know, chapter 15, that, um, that ultimately Abraham believed the Lord and he accredited to him as righteousness. So now we see that there is this precedent that one can have righteousness accredited to them through Jesus, but without Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, uh, John 8, 56, which then leads into you the, the saying where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, what prompted that statement is that Jesus says that uh, the Jews' father, Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to Jesus' coming and saw it and was glad. And so their response is like, how can Abraham have seen you? <laughs> you know, you are right here, right now. You're not thousands of years ago um, with Abraham. And um, what Jesus is saying is that Abraham did understand that at least in finality right? It wasn't fully in view. It was obscured, but Abraham still understood 
the faith that was credited to him as righteousness because of the covenant that was made with him, that intercessory covenant. And he rejoiced at that. And that was a picture that would be fully understood within the picture of Christ ultimately coming. So I think we can say, and I think this is what Paul says, like you said, um, Andy, is that the Jews were covered in Christ's blood because Christ's sacrifice covers past, present, future and that they may have not understood it fully, and we may not understand it fully, but that's what it does. That's what the saving once for all of Christ on the cross accomplished. Now, the universalist, of course, is going to pick up on that and say, well, what was done or could be done for the Jews could then be done for people. And in fact, you have different theologians that have followed along these lines of thinking, such as C.S. Lewis, as an example. And these are these are aspects of Lewis's theology that people, you know, become uncomfortable with. You know, right. what do I what do I do about this idea that he does think that for you know somebody of a different religion that their faith could be accredited to them as righteousness? Uh, I'll throw it back to you guys how you deal with this. But before I do, I want to I want to um, give it to you a little bit hotter than that because it could be easy to to just try to wave that away. But this is, again, I'm, I'm pushing back on how Christians can be contradictory on this, because often when it comes to the death of the unborn, uh, like the death of a child, for example, in the womb or, or death of a young child, we will tend to make provisions for this, uh, this, sort, of, this sort of thinking. So now that, I've, uh, now that I've sufficiently made that a hot potato, I will <laughs> throw it back to you guys. Well, yeah, I think ultimately, whatever you see in the Old Testament, you still see those who are God's elect, those who are God's chosen people, putting their faith and trust in God, in Yahweh God. And um, so the faith that is credited to them is the overarching blood of Jesus, whether they know it or not, but they're still putting their faith in God. And it's in this progressive revelation that we fully understand who that is. And we see this in... Um, in Acts chapter 10, when the apostles are told to go to Cornelius, because Cornelius, who is a centurion, who is a God-fearing pagan, uh, who's not Jewish per se, but he believes in the one true God, is they are called to go preach the gospel to him because he needs to know the full understanding of that God he believes in, in Jesus Christ. And I think this is why Paul laments over the Jews, because Paul, when he says that the gospel is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, is because he understands the fullness of the fact that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and that this is who the Jews have been longing for. He is their savior coming from and extrapolated from their scriptures. And so it's paramount that the Jews then find saving faith in Christ, because if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. And that's very important. And so I, th I think that that um, in sort of the, the backtracking of progressive revelation, the the Jews who understood, the nation of Israel who understood and put their faith and trust in God, were putting their faith and trust in the triune God. They just didn't have the full formulated language that we now have because we, we've we seen Jesus and the shadows, we've seen that which cast the shadows. I think if I understand your correction about children who die in the womb, I would say ultimately that God is free in his ability to elect whom he chooses, both adults and children. And so it's ultimately up to God. However, I think but everything we see in scripture, the only time 
someone is described who is innocent, who is not part of uh, the elect, are children who are sacrificed to the pagan gods. And I think that counts for something. Now, ultimately, that's just my opinion. But I think when we see the, the death of the innocents and this outcry from Yahweh because his people, Israel, are participating in this heinous and terrible act, um, I think we can say, ultimately, um, I believe that God in his freedom, even though those children are born into sin, that as uh, David says, that um, from his you know inception, he was born into sin. And I totally believe total depravity in that sense. Um, children are not exempt from that. But I think that God in his divine freedom has the freedom to choose children just as much as he does adults. And I think everything I see in scripture is that in God's divine um, providence, he does save the children in the womb, although that is a less of an exegetical position um, and more of a sort of systematic theological position. That's why I can't help but feel that when you get into this, and I hope that as people have been listening to this, and we've been trying to show you arguments from both sides, that we we understand that this is a messy and complicated issue. That at the end of the day, I I think that this that this issue requires that you constantly come back to this foundational position that I'm going to trust God, uh, that I'm going to come back to this position of, man, this, this is a messy, complicated issue, but I'm ultimately going to trust that it is through Christ that I am saved and that I'm going to trust that God is just and that God is going to do right, uh, whether that be for the unborn or be that be for my Aunt Sally. But I'm not, and this is, I think, key, but I'm not going to compromise Scripture to hold those positions that God is loving and that God is just and that salvation is found in Jesus alone. And I'm going to trust that. I'm going to live in that and understanding then that there's, that there is, that there's tension that, that's going to be found there. And that I think that you can perfectly hold and live within that tension. And, and I think that we're meant to live in that tension. I think that that's part of the motivation to share our faith is part of that tension is, is the destiny of, of people. But in, in, by the way, it's more than just the destiny of people, though. This is, this is their current lives. This is what's going on in their lives right now. It's not just about some future state. It's their current state as we seek to point people to Jesus, knowing that it is in him and him alone that is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, and that there are things that Scripture is clear on and speaks very loudly about, and there are things that Scripture is not as clear on. And I think ultimately, uh, our state in our depravity and the salvific message of the gospel in that being the way, the path to reconcile to God, that is clear. Whereas children dying in infancy the scripture doesn't necessarily speak to that directly where it does over here. So we can in one sense speculate on one issue, but we go off of what we do know, not what we don't know. And we do know a whole lot about the doctrine of salvation and what that entails. Uh, as we wrap up, I just want to say that um, we're, I, we're not trying to say that somehow universalists are, um, 
you know, fast and loose with scripture or anything like that is obviously uh, they try to make their case from a biblical perspective as well, but they have landed somewhere where, where we, we just don't land. Right. So we're not saying the universalists um, are unfaithful to scripture, but in our considered opinion, uh, what we see in scripture is yes, there is there is a clear direction uh, and it's not in the universalist direction. I think I would say they are being unfaithful to scripture. I think it's not that it's, they can't find merit for it, but I think ultimately they would be unfaithful to scripture because Mm -hmm. they would have to be inconsistent in their exegetical and interpretive approach. And that it's not a matter of, I have my texts and they have theirs, that their texts are actually in favor of me when put in context. That's, that's what I would say. I think what you're trying to say, Steve, is that we don't think that they're dummies. We don't Mm -hmm. think that they're completely out to lunch. These are intelligent people who I think ultimately have good motivations. I just think what they're doing is more eisegetical, reading their interpretation into the text rather than exegetical, bringing the interpretation of the text out and then applying that to their theology. Okay, I'm I'm happy with that. Let's uh, I'll land there for the time being. But uh, one thing that I want to tell our listeners is that when we uh, discuss these issues. I mean, we've only had an hour and something to talk about these issues. So what I often tell people is that our podcast here, it's not meant to be necessarily a final word on every single issue that we touch on, but I sure hope that this starts a conversation, right, on, on these issues. So uh, I'm sure some of you listening to this will be like, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied. Others will be like, ah, there's more that I want to discuss and probe and those kinds of things. And We welcome all of that. Yeah, I'll just make a quick book recommendation. Uh, There's a two-part series. Now, admittedly, it's not the, the, the lightest reading, and it is an expensive volume, but I think it really is a magnum opus on this particular topic. It's called The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. That's by Michael um, McClamond. And it, it really does, I think if the 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 listener is like, I really want to jump and dive into this. How should I understand this? And I want to get in the nitty gritty. Um, the Devil's Redemption is going to do that. Uh, and another one, I think especially for a pastoral approach, if there are fellow pastors out there who want to you know, address this issue, um, John Stott's The Cross of Christ, I think does a really good job because it centers around what the work of Christ accomplished on the cross. And I think ultimately that is where the crux of, um, no pun intended, the crux of the cross, the crux <laughs> of the fatal flaw of universalism is, is that it, it, it lacks a full picture and understanding of the cross of Christ. So uh, the cross of Christ by John Stott is also a really good, um, resource. I'm going to throw one more resource in there also by a Michael, uh, but that is a little bit easier to read in a smaller book. And that's by Michael Green, uh, Do All Religions Lead to God, is, in, is an excellent, excellent read. Um, and so take a, take a look at that one. Yeah, well, sounds great. Well, I hope, again, this podcast has been helpful to you all. Uh, the AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. In the meantime, go out there, love God, love people. Bye for now.